0: And one of the founders of that, Les Johnson, who works for NASA, he comes up to me one afternoon and says, hey, Joe, what do you know about graphene? And I was like, plenty, Les, what do you want to know? I I figured he was just going to ask me some casual trivia question because he needed reminding of it. But what in fact happens is he followed that up up with, I'm writing a book and I need a co-author. What do you know about graphene? And I say, well, Les, graphene is a conducting organic molecule, which is exactly what I got my PhD in so tell me what you want to know and I'll help. And he's like, no, no, I want you to be my co-author on this. I said, what? And my jaw just hit the floor. I mean, I was I was wily Coyote and, and uh, Jessica Rabbit there for a second.
1: Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. The four-minute mile was impossible until it was broken. Then it occurred over and over. The same is true of science. People will always tell you why you can't do something. But once you've done it, suddenly innovation, creativity, and progress speed rapidly on. That's what we're talking about today the impossible becoming possible, the accidental invention of graphene, how humanity is evolving and expanding as we master materials and are able to create new products that will fuel our more sustainable, successful, and space-oriented future. Today, we've got Joseph Meany on the program, the the Crimson Alchemist. He's an application scientist and material engineer. He's the co-author of Graphene, the super strong, super thin, super versatile material that will revolutionize the world. And along with his co-author, Les Johnson, the two make a really compelling case for graphene, Today, we're talking all about the material that's stronger than steel, lighter than a feather, and incredibly important to humanity's future. It's a really interesting one. It's one that we've talked a bit about before with Isaac Arthur and some of our other space-focused folks. But you know what? We'll dive even deeper into the science and importance of graphene. In today's episode, we discuss why theory and practice aren't always perfectly aligned, how material science and nanotechnology will transform life as we know it, what graphene means for humanity's expansion into space why Joseph is so optimistic about reducing plastic and pollution on our planet, the limiting factors holding back humanity from sustainable space colonization, and how nanotechnology will impact human longevity, medical efficacy, and the health of all of us. And now, without further ado, I give you Joseph Meany. Do you meditate? I know I do, and we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device, that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm Muse if you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. And now let's get on with the program.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: So Joseph, I wanted to get you on because you recently wrote a book about graphene and I know graphene's poised to change the world. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about why.
0: Oh, well, graphene, you know, uh, as far as material science is concerned is probably one of the biggest developments and one of the most unexpected discoveries of the last 50 years. It's tremendously exciting because while its existence was predicted and heralded for close to a century before its actual discovery, there were a number of people around the world who said that it couldn't exist and it built up this almost cult of naysayers who put together all sorts of complicated theoretical models as to why we would never actually see graphene exist. And to get into a little bit, graphene is a single layer of carbon atoms joined together in interlocking hexagons. And if you take a pencil that's on your desk, the center of that pencil that you actually write with is a mineral called graphite. And graphite is just stacks of these graphene sheets on top of one another, tens of thousands or millions of layers thick. And so when you touch this graphite to a piece of paper and you draw your letters, what you're actually doing is sloughing off these individual graphene sheets that cause the black marks we know as pencil writing. But nobody before... Uh, 1986 or so, had convincingly seen graphene in a way that they could actually use it to analyze different parts of its properties. Graphite had been analyzed for its crystal structure back in the 1920s, but when people tried to extrapolate the properties of graphite... To a single layer of graphene, a lot of questions raised about whether these unprotected single layers of carbon atoms would actually be stable. You know, there were a lot of people that said, "Oh, just look at it, it's ready to react with the air and everything in the world, and all these atoms are going to bounce around out of plane, and you just it's not going to exist. We'll never see it until uh, nineteen eighty six when Hans Peter Bohm actually discovered graphene. And beyond then through the 90s and into the early 2000s, it remained kind of an esoteric curiosity because making these graphene sheets was just exceptionally hard. You had to have laborious processes with highly trained people and sample quality was very dependent upon the preparation that you, you actually undertook. So some people were, weren't able to get particularly good reproducibility of graphene's properties. But then in 2004, Konstantin Novoselov and Andre Geim were in a group meeting one day discussing this problem about producing very thin flakes of graphite when a coworker of theirs said that, hey, well, we just take this graphite and we clean it by stripping it with sticky tape and then just tossing that residual in the trash, but nobody's ever looked at the residual uh, that's left behind on that sticky tape. So what happens if we look at those uh, flakes under the microscope? and it turns out that with a couple of steps of processing, dissolving away the tape and depositing those individual graphene flakes onto a surface that can be looked at under a microscope, they were able to determine that in fact, some of the flecks, Left behind on that sticky tape were single layer graphene, and nobody had ever seen it done that easy before. And so that just opens the floodgates for being able to probe graphene's properties in a reliable and repeatable way. So from the studies performed in 2004 and 2005 in the Geim lab. That's why they won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2010. And since then, you know, the sky is basically the limit. We'll get into the sky being the limit in a sec. But why is it that it seems like science
1: always or frequently advances from accidents, mishaps, spontaneity from intermixing? It seems like this is it's quite a common occurrence.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, I guess people just like the apocryphal story of Newton being bonked on the head by an apple and discovering gravity. Um, and of, of course, the real story is a little bit more complicated than that. And the story of graphene is likewise not quite as straightforward. But happy accidents, you know, the, that's the great thing about scientific discovery is that if you get an appropriately curious mind prepared to work diligently and thoroughly to understand what it is that they saw. And so the Eureka moments, even going back to the ancient Greeks with Archimedes and uh, dis- discovering that he can measure the density of materials just by water displacement. These stories are, are pervasive throughout science just because it does take a prepared mind to say that something funny is going on here. What is going on? Let me look at that deeper and unearthing that deeper truth underneath that peculiarity that we really see the cool wonders of the universe.
1: So it's conscious
0: effort plus subconscious
1: subconscious magic, so to speak, subconscious processing that just seems, seems to come out in the end.
0: Fortune favors the prepared mind, as they say, and you know, that's absolutely true of the scientists because while anybody or uh, anybody could take a piece of scotch tape and rip it away from a pencil lead, it really takes the ability to then say, well, if I go through the extra steps of pressing that sticky tape onto some uh, microscope slide and looking at it under the microscope slide, understanding... Each of those steps in sequence and what might come out of it is what allows them to, you know, come to the conclusions that are uh, truly
1: breakthrough. It reminds me of the Picasso story where a woman asked to buy a little uh, napkin he was sketching on. He offered it for $10,000 and she said, that took you 10 minutes. And he said, no, it took me a lifetime. And it, it reminds me of that. And people never think about it. They always want to simplify things. Why did you get into this field? Why did you get into science, material science?
0: It was kind of a random walk, actually. I've always been a science-oriented person. And I I kind of come from a line of inquisitive scientific minds. My grandfather was an engineer and inventor. My dad was an engineer and kind of an explorer. So I've, I've come down the line of handy people that like to figure out the way that things work. And it just so turned out that My niche area of science happened to be chemistry. That's just what made the most sense to me. So as I went through undergrad and eventually transitioned into grad school where I had to find a focus of chemistry, um, I was going through the different disciplines when I found a project that was called Molecular Electronics. And just the combination of those two words blew my mind. because. Never before had I actually thought about, wait, could we actually make circuits out of single molecules? And the answer is yes. And that became the entire focus of my dissertation. And so I was challenged and tasked with figuring out a way to use carbon and some other elements to make a diode wherein if we created a circuit with this molecule, Electricity could flow through it one way, but was prevented from flowing backwards through it. And I just ate up anything in the adjacent fields that had to do with electronic transfer inside molecules and materials.
1: And if you find this episode interesting, make sure to go to fringe.fm and search for graphene. We had another episode with John Leto, the co-founder of Vorbeck a company that is revolutionizing graphene production and bringing it to market in a couple of really interesting technical applications. If you find this interesting, I'm sure you'll love that as well. Fringe.fm, search for graphene or Vorbeck. But now back to Joseph.
0: So when I graduated, I continued a volunteer post with the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop. And one of the founders of that, Les Johnson, who uh, works for NASA, he comes up to me one afternoon and says, hey, Joe, what do you know about graphene? And I was like, plenty, Les. What do you want to know? I, I figured he was just going to ask me some you know casual trivia question because he needed reminding of it. But what in fact happened is he followed that up, that up with, I'm writing a book and I need a co-author. What do you know about graphene? And I say, well, Les, graphene is a conducting organic molecule, which is exactly what I got my PhD in. So tell me what you want to know and I'll help. And he's like, no, no, I want you to be my co-author on this. I said, what? And my jaw just hit the floor. I mean, I was I was Wiley e. Coyote and and uh Jessica Rabbit there for a second. So my mind just hit hit the roof. And so, you know, I continue with that passion and figuring out how materials, particularly those at the atomic scale, can be made in ways that can't be manufactured on the macroscopic scale. So you're familiar with 3D printing, right? Yeah. So basically, the ultimate end goal of 3D printing and additive manufacturing is atom-by-atom atom placement of those particular materials to get an, an end goal that is desirable. So if you could print a cube, but that cube had embedded in within it a three-dimensional network of circuits that weren't just these cards uh, built on top of one another, but they were actually able to have junctions and gates in all three dimensions that when electrons were flowing through this, you got unusual behavior that we can't get in our regular two-dimensional circuits. That's the exciting end goal for three-dimensional printing, and that's where we're going to get, you know, just exciting added functionality and almost, quote-unquote, true smart houses and true smart materials when they can be assembled atom by atom. Why does the third dimension matter? That's mostly a space issue. So if you're able to pack these circuits in so that they don't have to take up square footage, but can take up uh, cubic inches instead, then you can do more interesting Memory or power storage, those sorts of things
1: understood, and right now for the the traditional semi semiconductor industry, they are pretty much at the nano scale in terms of what they're building they just haven't been able to build in 3 d that is that correct
0: yeah and and they're getting there. I mean the ability of these semiconductor companies is just huge, and maybe somebody somewhere has secret projects that I don't know about that. All of my speculation is, you know, they're listening to this and snickering and saying, I'm doing that tomorrow, but that's not something that's publicly available yet as far as the distributed knowledge. What
1: do you think on the time horizon for when we start to see more nanoscale manufacturing? I know that nanotechnology was very big five, ten years ago. I went to Georgia Tech and it got very Mm -hmm. hyped, but we've had a bit of a lull. What, how do you see us progressing, and where do you see the next directions and progress?
0: Oh, that is a an extremely broad question. I mean, <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be here in five or ten years. Well, uh, you know, people, as you said, said that five or ten years ago. But that being said, I think nanotechnology in electronics and non-biological applications Particularly those that don't have to go through such a rigorous environmental or toxicological evaluation will hit the market first. So we'll see that more inside our computers, inside our phones, and inside industrial type applications where you can see the interface of chemistry generating, say, for example, biofuels and new catalysts for making drugs, those will be the areas that nanotechnology will affect the market first. And rather close on the heels, but we'll still see a bit of a delay, will be those areas where nanomedicine and the incorporation of small machines into... Biological applications or uh, biological combinations will see some sort of uh, benefit, but at the expense of having to spend a bit more time evaluating the the safety and efi- efficacy of those technologies it's also yet to see borne out uh, whether the benefit of the added cost of those materials is great enough to offset what we actually get from gains.
1: What do you foresee for some of the biomedical uses? I know I've heard everything under the sun and that nanobots are going to be controlling the inside outs of your body, but I'm, I'm sure people want a slightly more educated opinion. So what do you
0: think? Oh, sure. Actually, I was speaking with a group at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign uh, just this past week, and they're looking at involving gold nanoparticles to be taken up into cancer cells as um, anti-cancer agents. Because what can generally be done is these gold nanoparticles interact with wavelengths of light that can pass through our biological material, so it'll pass through our cell walls. I think it's microwave radiation, and what basically happens is these gold nanoparticles Then translate that into heat energy that heats up the environment around them. And so, if you can coat these gold nanoparticles with a protein sheath or shell that the cancerous cells will preferentially take up, you can end up treating cancer in a way that's extremely targeted and not blanket chemotherapy that you would see. Here today. And what's even a bit better about that approach is that if one is able to chief, uh, cheaply test the cell makeup of these people in a biopsy, and you can manufacture a protein receptor that will be taken up by this cancer cell then you can start talking about personalized medicine. And so when you get to that level of granularity in being able to treat patients... Time out.
1: If you're like me, you're probably wondering, what? How? Fighting cancer with nanoparticles? Joseph's is about to jump into the really fascinating and troublesome science of manufacturing at the nanoscale. I find this super interesting. I hope you do as well. Just wanted to make sure that, you know, don't worry. The the technical aspects are coming and we're going to keep it as simplified as possible for you guys to enjoy.
0: Of course, at first it's going to be expensive, but then you can start talking about minimizing or eliminating side effects. When these gold nanoparticles are introduced, the healthy cells would completely ignore The gold nanoparticles with their sheath around them, but the cancer cells, because they have some particular mutation, will gobble up these these nanoparticles that when hit with this microwave radiation will then just burst and cook the cancer cells. It's a Trojan horse. How do we manufacture
1: at these minuscule scales? I know manufacturing is at least what I understood. The, one of the large limiting factors right now for nano.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's really f- far beyond sort of the scope to talk specifically about things. I mean, uh, these gold nanoparticles are made out of regular benchtop solution chemistry with pretty tightly controlled conditions. But depending on the nanotechnology you're talking about, different methods of manufacture are appropriate. So, when we're talking about manufacturing graphene nanoplatelets, to turn it back to graphene for a second, chemical vapor deposition is one way to do it. You can do mechanical exfoliation like the the scotch tape method or you can chemically exfoliate it. And then there's another one called epitaxy, but uh that's mostly an evaporative process for creating these nanoplatelets. So, you know, any given material will have its own preparation and so talking about making nano things v- very broadly doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense
1: understood i want to i want to backtrack a little bit so you said graphene was impossible at least in the minds of many until mm. suddenly it was done how how do you deal with that as a scientist and what are some of the other potential avenues where you see these type of beliefs holding back science or Meta slash uh, material science.
0: Well, you know, everything is impossible until it's proven possible. And extra, you know, to lean on a cliche here for a second, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so, when it came to graphene, you know, that exact uh, mantra held true. I mean, there there was already some building evidence. For its existence throughout the 80s and 90s. Carbon nanomaterials, in general, were seeing kind of a real boost in that same time frame. I mean, it was 1985 that the soccer ball-shaped Buckminster fullerene molecules were discovered, and there was a tremendous amount of discussion, argument back and forth in the literature about whether they could or do exist until it was eventually found out that, yes, in fact, the Buckminster Fullerenes do exist, and that's a new form of carbon distinct from diamond and graphite. And then in 1991, people made the claim about carbon nanotubes, and there were some people that said, no, that can't exist. What are you doing? You're crazy. Tiny little whisker tubes of carbon, until, again, a bit of extraordinary evidence through very careful experimentation, uh, borne out the proof that, yes, in fact, these carbon nanotubes do exist and they have these certain types of properties. And so it was exactly that same thing 13 years later that, no, graphene can't exist. What are you talking about? Until irrefutable evidence came out through careful experimentation across multiple groups Confirming that, yes, in fact, this graphene is real. It is as thin as a single atom, and it has these remarkable electronic and uh, structural properties that we kind of had a hint from, from theoretical calculations and from extrapolating from what we knew about graphite. But it had, in some ways, even better properties because it's, you know, something like a million times more conductive than copper and 200 times stronger than steel by weight. So it's extremely strong, extremely flexible, extremely thin, and extremely electrically and thermally conducting. And so that's what I mean, that people had to be able to do these careful and repeatable experiments to really make sure that these properties were due to the material itself and not due to some external factors. And You know, history has then shown, yep, we saw graphene, and it's every bit as amazing as we had hoped, if not more so.
1: How will AI play a role when it comes to searching for new structures and types of material?
0: Well, I know searching algorithms and prediction algorithms are getting better. I would have to have a much longer and deeper conversation with a friend of mine, Amanda Stott, who also happens to live in Atlanta. She was a computational materials scientist that we went to the same grad school together. So she would probably have a bit better of an understanding of that field. But, you know, when it comes to predictions, computing power is only getting better and the algorithms by which to determine these properties are only getting better. So I think as these algorithms continue to improve, and we can make them more streamlined, then we'll be able to develop and predict these materials in a much more efficient way. There was actually an interesting study done on properties of metal organic frameworks, which are tinker toy like structures of atoms that have these, on an atomic scale, huge gaping cavities within them that small molecules and gases can diffuse into kind of like a water does within a sponge structure. These are atomic sponges. And these predictive algorithms, um, I don't think that it was a native AI, but it was certainly a rudimentary one, was able to extrapolate certain information about currently manufactured metal organic frameworks, or MOFs for short. And then when researchers then fed in these moths that they had hoped to make the the properties that came out were actually within a uh, pretty reasonable margin of error for the computation. So you know the discovery and development of these new materials is going to absolutely lean more and more heavily on computational prediction and then being borne out uh, and verified by experiment and you know, that already happens every day. Theorists and experimentalists play a nice hand-in-hand relationship. And some people, including myself, actually involve theoretical calculations in their day-to-day experiments. So as AI programs even get more user-friendly, you won't necessarily need to have somebody developing a code base but could actually develop a GUI for more higher level use, and then put the theorists on developing finer and finer grained algorithms for determining these structures.
1: Hey Matt here, Joseph referenced a GUI and I wanted to bring up what that was. It's a graphical user interface. If you've ever used a computer and you have different options, buttons, menus, etc., that is a graphical user interface. There's a back end and front end. The front end is what you're using to interact with a website, a computer, an iPhone, etc. And the back end is the much more complicated databases and processing that the device is doing. A GUI is really valuable because it allows general users to be able to handle more complex tasks. They're able to do things that they otherwise would not have been able to do. This is why Steve Jobs revolutionized the computing era. He was able to create a very, very simplified GUI that allowed even a five-year-old to be able to rock out on a a Macintosh and be able to start suddenly entering the era of computing. I know on on the physical side of things, specifically with the semiconductors, we've had Moore's Law for a while, and while it has been a bit forced lately, there's been exponential growth and exponential improvement. Do you foresee something similar happening in the in the fields that you're more focused on? So the the newer forms of material science, do you think we'll see exponential improvement over time?
0: Improvement, yes, to a point. You can't really get smaller as far as building materials than a single atom, but improvement in performance can continue definitely beyond the limitations of atoms. And that's where you're starting to get into spintronics and far more fundamental quantum physics with electronic structures. And unfortunately, that is way beyond my area of expertise. I have a friend, he got his PhD at Carnegie Mellon, went on to NIST for a few we- f- few years for his postdoc and now works for IBM. And th- this is exactly the area that he's working on. He's working on quantum computing. So, I bet we will still see some sort of improvement, whether that be exponential or a bit more linear, but it it will certainly remain an exciting field for for sure at least for the next 30 years.
1: Definitely, especially as we start to need to remove plastic from both the environment and production. What are your what are your thoughts on the the current system and how we can start to move in that direction?
0: Well, there are plenty of biologically based polymers out there that aren't specifically oil and petrochemical based uh, plastics. And so, you know, I think if we're able to figure out a way to harness making those um, bioplastics in a way that we can break them down and harness them in an economically and energy efficiently way, that's uh, definitely a way to go about it. There are plenty of researchers out there searching for ways to make it easier to break down cellulose. So cellulose being what makes up paper, wood, and those kind of pulpy structures. But if you're able to make a water bottle out of a castable type of biocellulose that some sort of microorganism can later munch on and eat, all the better. Um, the same thing could happen with spider silk. There's a really interesting group out at Tufts looking at turning silkworm silk or spider silks into functional materials and you know I, I see that has a lot of room for innovation as to where we could start to incorporate that into medicine, whether that be in a biodegradable sense or in a sense that, at least has a lower rate of rejection than maybe some other material that we put into the body that could be broken down over time on, upon the eventual death of the patient. And so, if we're able to find a way that we can recapture this carbon cycle without having to just go straight to, yeah, burn it and trees will eventually eat it, you know, as, as long as we can avoid that one waste pathway these bio nanomaterials certainly have uh, a bit of exciting space for new people to invent things
1: do you think we'll ever get to the point where we're 50 50 bio i.e organic uh, compounds for production clothing homes etc and 50 percent inorganic so traditionally how it's done today do you think we'll get to a point similar to that and if so when and why
0: well, I absolutely certainly hope so. Um, you know, the more we can rely on processes that are passive and the more that we can design material flows that don't require active waste management, like if you could imagine having a house where your only input was the sun, I mean, whether that be from a solar farm 50 miles away or from solar panels directly on your house, whatever form they take in an eventual future. And your only output was somewhat dirty water that maybe within a central area could be digested by microbes and then fed over into another feedstock. That's that's sort of the dream. And if we could see a harmony between the inorganic and the biological, then all the better. And I say inorganic and biological as opposed to inorganic and organic, because there's really no vital force that uh, separates the two. I mean, everything is just pushing electrons. And so if we have a microbe that when it's in the presence of a little rock particle that absorbs some light, promotes an electron, and that bacteria has a protein that can accept that electron, hey, that's awesome. And then if it can use that electron to reduce urea out of your uh, toilet water stream into food for a plant, I mean, awesome. That's that's sort of a really uh, overarching goal to go for. Now, can we get there? I'm extremely hopeful about that. And I would like to see more work being done on that. And that wouldn't necessarily be a required step for anybody seeking to go off world. You know, So whatever materials astronauts to Mars or Europa or beyond are going to take whatever starting materials they have with them, and they have to have a closed loop. And that closed loop can only absorb uh, sunlight to keep itself fed and so we're we're lucky that we're able to toy with an experiment with those processes here on earth and it's better that we develop those technologies for ourselves here on earth and work out all of those kinks before we try to prematurely send somebody off world and have a Matt Damon experience where we have to science the crap out of everything on the fly just to save our lives um so better that we have this for ourselves up front than in a dire emergency. You
1: know what I mean? Yeah. A Boy Scout is always prepared. So Exactly. I'm glad you I'm glad you went to back to space. I was gonna jump to that in a sec. So what are the implications? What how does graphene play into humanity's expansion into the cosmos? Warning, science awesomeness alert. It involves NASA and space and so much more. Make sure you're paying attention because this part's kinda cool.
0: Well, on the short term it's actually quite cool that the NASA is looking at incorporating astronauts' breath and capturing the carbon dioxide that they breathe and turning that into graphene um, for use in other materials. And so you know that helps keep waste production down on the International Space Station on the short term. Now, on a longer term, once we're able to produce graphene in a way that is large area. So right now we can produce many pounds or tons of graphene as we want, but all of those graphene materials are just going to be small nanoplates. But the real breakthroughs with graphene are going to come from when we can turn graphene into large sheets thinking like tablecloths or hammocks, because then we'd be able to incorporate graphene into uh, completely gas-sealed spacesuits, and we wouldn't have to worry about gas leaks long-term and delivering more atmosphere to the International Space Station and to other, other bases on other planets. Then you can talk about using graphene as energy storage in these Uh, large area batteries and supercapacitors. And you can take two-dimensional or regular nanomaterials and involve those in solar collection or in breaking down carbon dioxide and being able to recover the oxygen. So a lot of it comes down to resource utilization and waste management in space. So that's where a lot of the upfront work has to be done for space. But If we can eventually manage to make laser or solar sails out of graphene, that's going to be an exciting breakthrough. If we happen to be able to use tethers, there are some people that are hopeful that graphene and carbon based materials like carbon nanotubes will help build a space elevator. There is probably an equally skeptical group of people who are saying that's probably not going to work. I don't have. The expertise to comment one way or another, but my colleague Les Johnson is in the naysayer pile, so I'm gonna I'm gonna lean on him for that one.
1: Disappointing. What's holding back graphene from being able to build larger strips or larger surface areas?
0: Well, we just don't know enough about its chemistry yet. The real challenge is being able to uh, control how the carbon atoms attached to one another in this hexagon lattice. So if you could imagine for a second a a tablecloth, right? And it's made out of this square weave and part of its strength and structure comes from the interaction of these cotton threads, right? But if the loom that made this tablecloth had a misstep, and say, a thread was missed, or maybe uh, whole groups of threads were missed, then the structure of that final tablecloth won't exactly be as ideal as you had predicted it to be. And part of that means that you're going to have a structurally weak tablecloth, so you might be able to rip it with just your bare hands. And graphene manufacture on the large scale still currently suffers from that drawback. And so when we try to make these graphene sheets in large areas, sometimes the hexagons aren't exactly perfect, and you end up with pentagons or heptagons or even larger defects in these two-dimensional graphene structures. And it's these defects that are going to kill you on the electrical conductivity, the thermal conductivity or even even the strength itself of the graphene. So, even though it's just a single atom thick, graphene is strong enough if you had a tablecloth of it to hold up a soccer ball or maybe a small cat. You know, it's it's that strong, but if you introduce these defects into it that really affect the properties, you know, just by changing these minute shapes inside the graphene structure, then you're not going to be able to support that much weight. Maybe you'll be able to support a ping pong ball or something of the sort, and and it'll tear especially easily. So once we're able to figure out a way that If we made a tablecloth out of graphene, we know that every single carbon atom in there is equivalent and every single shape inside that structure is a hexagon, then we'll be able to really just do anything with graphene. And whomever figures out that process, if they don't get a Nobel Prize, they're certainly going to be exceptionally wealthy.
1: I'm sure they would be very excited for either. (laughs) It just depends if it's a scientist or an entrepreneur, which they want more. But um, what we like to do with Fringe FM, in addition to talking about the expertise of our guests, we like to jump into other topics as well. So outside of of your day-to-day, what else are you focused on or interested in? What fields fascinate you?
0: Well, I love light. I love being able to talk about chemical problems or solutions in the term of you know what what is happening inside reactions with light and so i love spectroscopy and i love reading about what people are doing with introducing light into chemical and nanotechnological systems to be able to open up new paradigms that aren't otherwise available just through stirring and heating a reaction on a on a benchtop but i mean if you mean by the stuff that i like to do outside of the science in general I spend time volunteering with the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, and I'm also actually a really big cosplayer. I put together a number of costumes from video games, movies, and the like to go to Dragon Con each year, which happens in Atlanta, and it actually happens this coming weekend, at least when we're recording. I don't know when this is coming out, but so Labor Day weekend every single year. The biggest party of 80,000 geeks get together in downtown Atlanta to celebrate the fandoms of the things that they love, whether it be comics or movies or literature, science and what have you. What are you
1: dressing up as?
0: Um, So I've got a couple of outfits, actually. My girlfriend and I have a costume that is inspired by the old TV show Defiance, where we dress up as Ark Hunters, which are sort of these post-apocalyptic treasure hunters. And then I've got a thief character named Locke, out of Final Fantasy VI, a super NES game. And then Sarah will also be dressing up as Harley Quinn, and I've actually got a Dungeons & Dragons group that I play together with. We we have a nerd squad, as we call ourselves, and we're going to be a part of a group cosplay as a post-apocalyptic Alice in Wonderland where I'll be the Mad Hatter. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that too.
1: I just learned earlier today where the term Mad Hatter came from. Apparently, it is like three hundred years ago or so. The I, I can't think of the term. The the folks who make hats. Essentially there was mercury poisoning in a town and they all started going mad, so it became a mad hatter. But anyways, that's completely unrelated. It's it's super interesting. I know I went to tech so I saw tons of I saw tons of the Dragon uh Dragon Con type stuff. Well do you <laughs> think that's do you think that's what inspired you to get into these type of fields? Uh what do you what do you mean? Just what what's been quite common with a lot of the past guests is They had some type of super nerdiness growing up. Maybe they were super into sci-fi or they were on the academic mathematics team or something. Everyone got inspired and pulled by something that kind of defined them. What was it for you and why?
0: Oh, I easily trace that back to just growing up. Like I said, you know, my dad was an engineer and adventurer. So a big part of growing up for me was growing up outdoors, always on natural nature trails, always going out camping, looking at the stars. And so a significant portion of that was wondering how this all worked. And it was science, particularly biology, chemistry, and physics that roped me in and kept just at me asking questions about why, how do leaves absorb the light and create sugar out of carbon dioxide? like. Just don't expect that to be a thing. And, you know, it was only in the, I don't know, 1700s or so that somebody did the very careful experiment to show that trees, through some mechanism, and they didn't explain it to a very deep level, but they said, yeah, trees take in this carbon dioxide and water, and they somehow within their bodies stitch it together to make wood and maple syrup and everything that we love about trees and plants and grass. So that's extremely fascinating. And, you know, I've been I've been lucky that I've had a supportive family that always pushed me towards new limits of asking questions. And I've had a, an extremely supportive group of friends that even though their particular areas of nerdiness and expertise are comics or... History or, or you know, the other types of fields. Having a group of people that are just genuinely, passionately curious, and it doesn't have to be to any particular field. Just having people that would be glad to sit around a fire and tell you this awesome hour-long story about some minutia that you know generally people don't have the patience or curiosity to ask or answer, but merely having an appreciation for that other person's passion really creates a positive feedback effect. And so that's where I think a number of very successful people have these networks to, to draw off of. And so it is, it is definitely with my work and, and my presenting at DragonCon that keeps me broad in my science interest, but at the same time still having this appreciation and curiosity for the, you know, broad but narrow subfield of nanochemistry uh, and nanotechnology within the chemistry and physics sub
1: One thing that worries me is I see a lot of kids losing that curiosity and instead getting plugged into their phones. I know part of this is parents, part of this is society. The only thing that we could really change is the education system. So what would you change about the current education system to try to inspire more of that curiosity and creativity with kids? Because I think that's going to be one of the defining factors of the future.
0: Well, you know, I would argue that kids themselves are naturally curious. They just need to be within environments that give them the freedom and flexibility to explore that creativity. I saw a quote just the other day, and darn it if I don't remember who said it, um, but it was about an older gentleman, and he said something along the lines of, once I got out of school, I found that you know the education I could get was really good. And you know that was a very rough approximation of what the quote was but it basically is that when he was no longer constrained by standardized tests and a schedule that was dictated from the top down that he was able to really flourish in exploring fields of his own interest i i don't know that i have all the answers for changing the public school system but i think that trying to get kids off of phones and computers and technology isn't going to be the catch-all idea because i use a computer for 90% of my work whether it's looking up facts and communicating with colleagues those sorts of things you know that's what these young people are naturally doing on their phones anyways but if we're able to push them away from the mind-sucking candy crush which still has some, you know, interspatial knowledge value, but you know, if we're able to then push that into a developmental way of getting them to ask questions and solve answers and not being afraid to fail, that's when you'll start to see more people really embrace uh, their own areas of self-interest. I mean, I was afraid of failure, just like anyone coming out of high school and undergrad. And you know, every day I suffer from the the imposter syndrome, as it's known around the academic field. That's that's something that most of us just sort of feel. But when we come to an understanding with ourselves that tripping and falling will happen and it's not a bad thing. The thing that separates the people who will learn something new from those that won't are the people that will get up, dust themselves off, learn from the accident, and incorporate that into the future. So I make an absolutely honest effort to fail all the time. I just also make a very conscious effort of learning from those failures. And so if I make a, you know, public mistake, I'll own up to it. I'll apologize, I'll correct the record, and then, you know, I'll do what it takes to move on. And I think that's something that we could all really take a lesson from doing is, you know, turn up the humility and tone down the ego a little bit and try to rely on one another just a little bit more so that we can really start to grow as people and as communities. Does that make sense?
1: That makes sense. That was really, really, really well said. Fail fast and learn things. It's kind of the purpose of Fringe FM. We cover lots of different science and technology, education, economics. We try to cover the basis of what the future will hold because everyone listening is going to get something different out of this. Ideally, you'll learn from all the episodes, but most likely people will be interested in specific things. This isn't a a course or curriculum. Instead, they're going to go and seek out things, learn and better themselves. That's kind of the idea and that's kind of how we're doing we're doing our part. We've um that's probably that's probably like the best possible place to wrap up with what you just said there. So I have okay. one I have one last question for you and then we'll start to wrap things up. And okay. th- that would be if you could leave people with one thing on top of that incredible thing you just left them with. Uh, a quote, a call to action, something, what would it be and why?
0: Ooh, you know, it just uh Coming up with something a bit more poignant than what I said, uh, we'll leave it at that. You, you, killed, <laughs> you killed it with that. Where is
1: the best place for people to find you online and uh, check out? Of course, check out the book.
0: Yeah, so you can uh, find the book on Amazon or on Barnes and Noble. Uh, the quick way to find that is tiny.cc forward slash graphene book or tiny.cc forward slash the graphene book. You can find out more on thegraphenebook.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Crimson Alchemist. That's Crimson with a C, Alchemist A L K E M I S T. The same thing goes for my Instagram, where you can see all sorts of pretty rainbows and uh, spectroscopy uh, from my day job and science and cosplay curiosities. So I'll occasionally tweet or Insta about those. You can find my co-author Les Johnson at uh, on Twitter at Les Author and. If you find a sales place, you can look for us actually at the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop at tviw.us and our Twitter is tviwus as well. So plenty of places to find us. I'm always open to having conversations like this with anybody out there. So always, always, always feel free to get in touch.
1: God, I can't believe Barnes & Nobles is still around. I never would have expected that. Thanks so much for coming on today, Joseph. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you guys enjoyed this,
1: your support is incredibly important for us. If you go to fringe.fm slash support, you can make a tax-deductible donation. Or if you just like the show and want to share it around with a friend or family member, that's always great, too. Helping us get to more people helps us hopefully make the world a little better. So thanks, thanks Joseph, and thanks, guys, for tuning in. God, I can't wait to pay my taxes. Do you ever thought that? What about the government is such an efficient way of making the world a better place? I can't think of a single person who would make either of those statements. Well, there's good news. Did you know you could make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM? Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3, a nonprofit, a charity organization. That means that you can make a donation and write it off 100% on your taxes. And all of that goes towards our mission of making a better, more inclusive, and abundant world. You can quite literally multiply the impact that we're able to create with a small donation. Please visit fringe.fm give if you care about our mission and work. And please consider supporting our efforts. You're quite literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.